2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Robin Feldman's book, Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices, from Oxford University Press. This is from the introduction. Everyone has a limit. Every budget has an endpoint. Although sellers would love to raise prices continually, it doesn't take fancy economics to know that at some point, the money runs out. Why isn't that basic principle working as expected in the pharmaceutical industry? Instead, drug prices are rising continually and reaching astronomical levels with no end in sight. In May 2018, analysts reported that a company is contemplating a $1.5 million price tag for new hemophilia cure. The current hemophilia therapies already cost an astounding $580,000 to $800,000 a year. Along the same lines, Spark Therapeutics' cure for a rare form of blindness will cost $850,000, rivaling Novartis's planned $475,000 price tag for its CAR-T drug, Chimera. Even outside the eye-popping headlines, prescription drug prices across the board have risen to an alarming and puzzling level. A government inspector general's report found that the high cost of brand medications for common conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, and asthma were the true problem for patients on Medicare. In fact, pharmaceutical companies have raised the prices most sharply for commonly used medications such as these. Similarly, an analyst report concluded that in 2016, the average price for a set of specialty drugs known as orphan drugs was $140,000 a year, and the average price of ordinary drugs was almost $28,000 a year. The list price of drugs tells only part of the story, given the many rebate and discount processes that exist within the industry. Nevertheless, real spending for drugs is rising as well. According to the Health and Human Services Inspector General's report, even after accounting for rebates, Medicare spending for branded drugs still rose 62% between 2011 and 2015. Worse yet, the department responsible for Medicare and Medicaid projects that the increase in national prescription drug spending will more than double in 2018 from the prior year's significant rise. In 2017, this increase in spending outpaced increased health care spending as a whole, and the 2017-2018 Consumer Price Index. All of this, despite the fact that roughly 80% of the prescriptions in this country are filled using generic drugs. No one would ever suggest that spending within the healthcare system follows an ordinary, rational model. The patient as consumer does not observe the full cost of healthcare given the effects of private insurance and government programs, nor does the consumer possess full information about the products purchased or the cost of choices, and even physicians experience information gaps. Most important, the value consumers place on their own lives creates distortions that differ from buying choices in ordinary markets. Nevertheless, dollars are finite, and some limits must exist. One can see the mounting pressure in government budgets, which are struggling to cover the cost of new expensive medicines. If the Defense Department had treated all veterans, all VA patients, infected with hepatitis C in 2015 using the breakthrough cure Sovaldi, the $12 billion cost would have accounted for 20% of the department's annual medical budget just for treating a single disease. With budgets in the home, patients reporting rationing or foregoing medications for lack of funding. This is precisely the type of boundary point that should create pressure to reduce prices, and yet the rises persist. This book analyzes and explains the phenomenon which has puzzled modern commentators and policymakers alike. Why do drug prices stubbornly continue to rise despite the promise of competition from generic drugs? Quite simply, the phenomenon occurs because internal incentives push every market participant toward behaviors that increase prices, knocking out the normal checks that should operate as breakpoints on the market. At the center of the system lies the highly secret and highly concentrated industry known as pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. These middle players negotiate prices between branded drug companies and those who pay the bills. They arrange for rebates from various drug companies. They also establish the formularies, which are the schedules that set the terms on which patients can access particular drugs and the reimbursement rate patients will get. The PBM middle players are supposed to act to ensure good bargains for patients and health insurers, but the reality is far from that ideal. Moreover, the system is deeply hidden. The contracts between the drug companies and the PBMs are a closely guarded secret, with the details known only to the drug companies and the PBMs themselves. Government entities and the private insurers who pay the bills are not permitted to see the full terms of the contracts. Those who pay are given periodic rebates without full information regarding the actual net pricing for any particular drugs. Markets thrive on information, and from the standpoint of competition, such an industry design is problematic at best. Despite the extreme secrecy, details have begun to seep out through case documents, including recent contract disputes among parties, government reports, reports to shareholders, state Medicaid actions, and industry insider reports. Placing together information from these original sources, this book presents, for the first time, a full picture of the perverse profit-taking incentive structures within the industry. The book demonstrates the way in which encouraging consumers to use drugs with higher prices operates in the interests of so many players, including doctors, clinics, hospitals, PBMs, brand drug companies, health plans, patient assistance programs, and patient advocacy programs. And then it continues from there. Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes by Robin Feldman. and welcome back boy we've we've got so much on the on our plate here should we do away with patents for drugs i think this is a great idea P, uh, dean baker of uh, as i recall the economic policy institute writing about this over truth out and just having the government fund all research into pharmaceuticals, yes, it can be some of it can be done by the drug companies. Most of it is already being done by our universities. I mean, this is the kind of the dirty little secret. The drug companies say, "Oh, we've got to have these huge profits because we've got to fund research, and then they take the profits and they put it in their pockets. I mean, literally, they pass it out to their stockholders as dividends or they give it to their CEOs as pay. And yeah, they do some research, but uh, most of the research is paid for by you and me already. So why don't we just pay for all of the research and have some say in the research and make sure that the research is actually serving the public good doing away with patents could cut the price of pharmaceuticals by as much as 90 percent it would almost certainly cut them by at least 70 percent just a very simple thing just simply saying you know legislatively congress could pass a law congress passes patent laws to begin with congress can carve holes in the patent laws You can't patent coffee, but there's a thriving coffee business. You can't patent tea, but there's a thriving tea business. You can't patent bread, but there's all kinds of companies competing on bread. Just because you can't patent drugs doesn't make the drug industry go away. So Congress could pass a law saying no more patents for drugs, which means anybody can make any drug. All they have to know is, you know, the the chemical formula and the the method to make it, which would become common knowledge. And then drug companies are competing on the quality of their product, on their ability to deliver it to the marketplace. Uh, I mean, there would be a whole brand new spectrum of things that they would be competing on. And also, they would have less of an incentive to try to tweak existing drugs, which is what most of the drug company funded research goes to, so that they can simply renew or extend their patents and keep their prices way up there. And insulin would, instead of $1,400 a month, it would go down to its actual cost, which might be $20 a month. It seems to me like this is a really big deal. And, you know, Donald Trump promised he was going to uh, solve the drug price problem. Not only has he not solved it, but drug prices have gone up on 3,400 drugs. Why? Because they can. A patent is a monopoly. And these drug companies have these monopolies, and they're saying, hey, we're just going to squeeze every penny we can out of the American consumer because Congress is going to let us. Well, I'm saying Congress, stop letting them. There's a way to do this. I would love to see this become part of the Democratic platform. And I would love to see one of the Democratic candidates pick this up and run with it. So if any of your candidates, any of you candidates are listening, or consultants or people on their staff, whisper in their ear about it. Kurt in Greeley, Colorado. Hey, Kurt, prescription drug prices? You're absolutely
3: right. They don't invest their own money to develop these drugs. It's about seventy three percent comes from the U.S. taxpayer. Yep. And then they take those and totally rob us every single day. It's absolute insanity.
2: Yeah, and if we simply did away with patents on pharmaceuticals and made them like herbs and vitamins, you can buy vitamin C or you can buy saw palmetto or ginkgo biloba or you know pick your absolutely yeah. from thirty different companies, right? And they're all competing on price and quality.
3: But it's not even just pharmaceuticals, which is egregious enough. It's also everything else we've done in our society. I'll give you a few examples. I could literally go on for days of examples. But LASIK eye surgery. It was developed back in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. But it was very, very expensive and it didn't work all that well. It's about 60% successful. I don't even want to know what happened to the people that it didn't work on. Yeah. But it was about $10,000 an eye. Today you can get it for around 500 600 an eye, right? right? And 99.9% successful, right?
2: How's that not a good thing?
3: It's an amazing thing. But the corporations didn't fund that technology to get that technology to make it so ubiquitous that we can all do it. The space station did. If it wasn't for NASA trying to find a new way to dock the space shuttle to the space station with the laser algorithms to do that, we wouldn't have that LASIK. Really? Drop and I had no efficiency. idea. Exactly, because before then, to dock a space probe to another thing, honestly, it was a very highly technical process, basically called bump and grind. Well, we didn't really want to do that with a brand-new space station. right? So they had to redo the algorithms of the lasers to make sure it fit with less energy than a bird landing on a branch. And they took that technology and said, wow, we can do this with Lasix now. And I'll give you one more from astrophysics. You know, an MRI machine? Sure. Happens to be pretty popular, pretty profitable, correct?
2: Right, we got There's 30 seconds
3: here. All right, well, if it wasn't for astrophysics, designing lasers and stuff to look at densities of clouds and things, we wouldn't have the ability to look inside the human body without cutting it open. So those are taxpayer S- programs. So MRI
2: technology. MRIs were developed, the technology for an MRI was developed in order to look at weather by the, by the federal government?
3: nasa to uh, measure density of clouds and stuff in space
2: uh oh i see
3: and then a physicist down here said I can look inside something and tell tell the density of a tissue. Yes, you can. Well, I can do something with that. MRI comes out.
2: Amazing, amazing. They don't own any of this stuff. We do. Yeah, there you go, Kurt. Well said, Kurt. Thank you very much for the call. That's fascinating. That that you know, I have the smartest listeners on earth. I'm. It's such an honor to sit here in this chair and hang out with you guys. Robert Sanders just tweeted something out. It's like, this is great. I've got to share this with you. Back in 1980, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter had a debate, a presidential debate. And in that debate, Jimmy Carter said something. He made a proposal. And Reagan famously, I mean, this is probably the only thing anybody remembers from that debate. Reagan famously said, there you go again. You know what Reagan was saying there you go again about? He was ridiculing Jimmy Carter For wanting to have medicare for all let that sink in for a minute reagan saying there you go again was ridiculing jimmy carter for wanting medicare for all here is the clip it's 49 seconds listen to this
4: reagan as a matter of fact began his political career campaigning around this nation against medicare now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance with an emphasis on the prevention of disease an emphasis on outpatient care not inpatient care An emphasis on hospital cost containment to hold down the cost of hospital care for those who are ill. An emphasis on catastrophic health insurance, so that if a family is threatened with being wiped out economically because of of a very high uh, medical bill, then the insurance would help pay for it. These are the kind of elements of a national health insurance important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor,
2: there you go again. There you go again. Right. It's shocking when you look back on it, you know. It's, it really, really and truly is. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech.
5: All of the talking that everybody does of getting us expanded Medicare for all, this is something I go around trying to teach when I'm out, you know, and about. Has anyone tried to explain to the corporations what it would mean to them if all of their employees are on Expanded Medicare for All and how much it would save them in instead of trying to help people get insurance. Has anybody tried to teach the CEOs of, say, like GM or uh, Ford or Chrysler, what it would mean to their businesses if all of their employees are on Medicaid for All?
2: It was and, it was big business that was supporting Harry Truman when he wanted to do single-payer yeah so I think go. I think that this is not a secret in in the uh, corporate boardrooms they know how much they spend on health care uh, although you've got a bunch of companies you know with the Walmart's of the world who don't offer good health insurance and when they do you have to pay for part of it and all this other kind of stuff um, and 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 the and the larger you know companies that offer no health insurance at all and I, I don't want to name names because I'm not sure exactly who that is but there's a lot of companies, particularly you know, big retail companies, uh, food yeah. services companies. They're not offering any health insurance. What they're looking yeah. at is if everybody gets health insurance through Medicare for all, their taxes are going to go up. It's going to be paid for in part by a raise in corporate taxes, and so they're opposed yeah, to it. But this is
5: also an expense. Every company that he- that pays a payroll and matches the Medicare contribution, matches the Social Security contribution. These are the only two programs that we, the people, have none of these corporations even offer a pension to people and so if you can get these idiots in my view to wake up to the fact that if they would give everybody expanded medicare for all cover everything and increase social security so that people when they retire they know they're going to be safe this would create a stable economy what people pay here for blue cross blue shield our biggest thing is a house payment or even a car payment. And we have ads every day, come buy a car. Right. But these people cannot buy a car when they do not know what their health insurance is going to be. Right.
2: And the other the other advantage to business, and this would be even to be to the business that doesn't offer health insurance, is the public health advantage. When the broad base of the population has access to health care diseases are less likely to travel because people get treatment. Um, People are, you'll see less turnover in your your employees. You'll see a healthier workforce. Those are all good things. Those are all social benefits that we all need to be promoting. Norma, thank you for the call. And and as usual, you knock it out of the park. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older, but All that has changed now thanks to this magic-in-a-bottle Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crows, feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part? No surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger looking skin in minutes. And the best part is, it goes on clear so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code hartman, h a r t m a n n for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code hartman. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code Hartman. Marianne in Seattle. Hey, Marianne, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up?
0: Hi. So I'm thinking about the Medicare for All, and one of the biggest reasons that it's fought so hard as resistance it's so hard is because You know you can connect the dots when it comes to all that information being in one spot if we are taking care of children and adults no matter what their age and the information comes up that here are all these diseases that are related to like they do with the coal miners the lung disease and they ended up putting this guy who's totally about the coal industry in charge of that cabinet position you get liability connecting the dots just like they did with the tobacco industry that just barely now starting to put out what were supposed to be resolutions with education and they are the tiniest admissions of here's the connection between you know smoking and addiction and lung disease uh-huh. you got oil fracking and the oil industry having nondisclosure agreements now for settlements and the nondisclosure agreements are for you your children and your grandchildren you can't sue us again And it's like once you start to put all this stuff together, like we have in the cities, the incidence of diabetes going up, the incidence of all these diseases going up related to pollution and everything, that liability comes home. And it's very clear, you know, how that line points directly to these industries and these particular folks who are benefiting by doing damage to communities in that way. So I think that's huge money that they – are fighting hard to just keep as their own, acting like it's a big secret or something, but yeah, once you get all these diseases, especially with the environmental changes that are going on, if you can look at it and see it happening with Mother Earth, you can look at it and see it happening with each and every individual, but you can see it generation by generation all at once when you get a whole medical care system that is treating this. So I don't think they want people to have access to that information, they want people to be able to say and go to their government, they don't want a government that will support people in that way.
2: I think it even goes beyond that, Marianne. If we had, you know, I pointed out in the past that every cancer diagnosis is worth a half a million dollars to the healthcare yeah. industry. We have a system right now where the more people who are obese and thus have diabetes and heart disease, the more money we're making right? The more people that we have who smoke and are getting cancer and emphysema, the more money we're making. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. If you look at countries that have national health care, look at Australia. In Australia, Mm -hmm. they passed a law that all the tobacco packages have to have a picture on the back of an autopsy photo of a black lung, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, It's just gruesome what the cigarettes look like in Australia. Why? Why would everybody get together and say, let's do this? Because everybody's paying the cost of the health care for those people. Countries in Europe, you know, Denmark, they've got a program where more than 50% of the people in the capital city of Denmark now ride their bicycles to work. 50%. Why? Because they wanted to get people healthy because they want to lower their health care costs. There's no incentive to do that here in the United States. The health insurance companies, everybody makes more money the sicker we are. They can jack up their profit margins. They can jack up their co-pays and their deductibles. They can raise the premiums. Everybody's making money on this, and it, there should not be a profit incentive in health care. It, it's insane. It should be a government function. Marianne spot on. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's up?
5: Hi, Dr. Tom. I don't know if you got to see Robert Reich on MSNBC last night talking about universal health care.
2: I did not. Which, which show was he on?
5: Um, I, I don't remember. They're okay. all, they all run <laughs> they together.
2: They all blur together, yeah. <laughs> I pretty much only watch uh, Rachel's show in the evenings. But
5: yeah, anyway. she was pretty good last night. Yeah. But most people don't even stop and think about the fact that we already have five government medical programs. Medicare, Medicaid, Children's Health Insurance Program, Tricare, and the VA. Right. And we have five bureaucracies to handle this. I have a neighbor. She's a state employee current working state employee needs an mri blue cross said she couldn't have one she's in excruciating pain and she is down there sobbing on the couch this morning because of the pain hmm. and she can't have an mri to find out what's wrong
2: that's insane
5: it's it's disgusting it's all profit and these greedy people, if they can't get by on $21 million a year, which works out to a little over $10,000 an hour, which is, you know, a salaried employee gets paid the first day of the year, even though it's a national holiday. That means he gets paid over $40,000 the first morning of the first day of the year, and he didn't even go to work. And another 40000 in the afternoon. And you wonder why people can't afford health insurance. If a person, had one, one, say a married couple, at least one paycheck a month goes to health care, that means they cannot save money and buy a house. That means that they cannot develop equity in their family. They can't buy a new car. They can't buy a better grade of washer and dryer, and why should they if they don't own the house?
2: They can't put their kids through college.
5: And they cannot put their children through college. Everything here in Alabama is taxed. I pay ten cents on the dollar for food. Hmm. For food. But we cannot tax the stock market, even you know, like Bernie was talking about point zero zero one percent to create a fund for free college. Yep. Yeah, but instead we have a dozen greedy men who own or control the health insurance industry who are making billions out of the the, the population, the entire population, every year. And this is keeping the country poor, and this is also financial segregation. You're not good enough to have health in- insurance unless you pay me a great deal of money. And so what are we supposed to do? Get down on our knees and beg, please, Mr. Rich Guy, let me ha- go to the doctor. That's, please, exactly what, that's
2: exactly what we're supposed to do. That's what they want, in we my We are opinion. not
5: serfs. We were born free.
2: Yeah, well. We one- have
5: rights. And if they Warm don't hopes. wake up and stop this and give us one universal health care program, call it the, United, the Department of Health you know, Care for the United States, right. whatever they want to call it, and get people to the doctor. I would like to go out to eat again, but I don't because I don't want TB sauce on my salad. We've had eight outbreaks of TB here in Alabama. Tuberculosis. Yes, tuberculosis. Wow. Active live tuberculosis, and this is because this is
2: because people don't have access to healthcare. I mean, this this is a public health crisis as well. When yes, you've got the state of Utah, you got 150,000 people who are uninsured, and you have a TB outbreak. You know, they're not going to do anything about. It. Oh, I'm coughing.
5: How about the person that clean, cleans the rich man's office, the rich man's bathroom? How about the person who puts a pair of glasses on your face when you need a new eye frame? How about the person who cleans your teeth? How about the person who cleans your child's school? This goes on across the entire fabric of our country. And this is causing a health crisis, but it is also financial snobbery, financial segregation. Oh, they're not good enough. They don't work hard enough. I have a new family across the street, four black people. They have six jobs between them because the two boys are going to school. Wow. Wow. Six jobs. And yeah. if I hear one more person tell me how lazy the black people are, I'm probably going to hit them because I'm sick of it. Yeah. When I was listening to the guy, Rick, yesterday, I was almost ready to cry. But also, how many times does a white person say, hey, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. Let's mm. talk about some things. How often does a black person do it? We have to start talking to each other. Yeah. We cannot keep segregating people and hating somebody because they look different. We're human beings. And this business of... Segregating people because you, you're not good enough for this and you're not good enough for that has to stop.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree and very well said, Norma. Thank you very much. Jim in Belvedere, Illinois. Hey, Jim, what's up?
6: Yeah, I totally agree with
7: your last caller. My point is sort of similar. My employer pays $44,000 a year for our health and welfare, including our pension. Wow. That's per man. Wow. And it's a Teamster, it's a union job, we're a union company, but our numbers have diminished. Our pension plan is in turmoil, and wouldn't it make sense if we had Medicare for all? That would defray the cost of the health care to the employer. where he could pay better wages and offer
2: a good pension fund. This is why Canada has a higher standard of living. It's why Canada has lower infant mortality. It's why Canada has lower maternal mortality. Canada has a longer lifespan because everybody has health care. And on the higher standard of living, everybody has health care through a single-payer plan that doesn't skim 20% off the top. So a bunch of health care billionaires can have a ninth or tenth mansion in Sweden or, or Switzerland or whatever. Michael in Snohomish, Washington. Hey, Michael.
6: Yeah, I disagree with that about how you say the Republicans hate the poor people.
2: Well, I didn't oh, say they, they hate mean, them. I'm, I'm just wondering is that is that what causes them to say no, poor people, you may not have health insurance.
6: Well, they're doing everything they can to make more of them.
2: More they poor love people. Poor
6: people. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a huge servant class to run your estates and the, the sweatshops.
2: You're right. See, so you think it, it's, you know, we want to make, we want to have more poor and desperate people. Uh, those poor and desperate people, then, are going to become cheap labor for us. So, you know, the, the pool boy's not going to charge as much.
6: Well, pool boy, heck, that'd be a good job. They're the poor, what they want What You can't be the Crawleys without a whole bunch of servants to run your Downton Abbey. Yeah. I mean, they don't want Daisy to get
2: a typewriter and find a new job. They want her scrubbing floors. Right. Well, you know, actually there's, you know, your your position, you know, the, the guy called before you was saying it's all Calvinism, you know, this idea that, that God has blessed rich people, you know, and, and they're supposed to run society. And the obvious evidence of that is their riches. And that is the basis of, you know, one of the major Christian denominations, keep poor people in eternal servitude. Yeah, makes sense. Michael, thank you. Robert in Sacramento. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today?
3: I think the the question is pretty simple. The Republicans they hate poor people.
2: And, so uh, so this is simply punishing people for being poor. You may not have health insurance because you're poor. Period. Right. Where does that hatred come I, from? I thought maybe you could explain it. I you know I can't. I mean I, you know my dad was a Republican. I never heard him say anything you know bad about poor people. I I just I I, I don't. You know, I I get that it's happening, right? You know, I've I've been doing this show for 15 years. I'm watching this happen. I've been watching it happen my whole entire life. I watched this happen, you know, when Reagan came to office, you know, oh, you know, we can't have people going to college for free, you know, that's a terrible thing. And I get that they've got some weird philosophy that if you don't work for things and if you're not indebted to your employer and all this kind of stuff, and it seems like kind of a plantation mentality, plantation owner mentality on the part of the Republicans, but I, you know, where where this comes from, you know, what's the deeper thing? What's the deeper meaning? What is this coming out of? What would cause somebody, what would cause a Republican, a middle-class Republican in the Utah legislature, to say, the people of this state said that they want to have Medicaid expansion, but I'm going to deny that to them? I don't get it. Charles, in uh, South, South, Dent, California? well, that's south gate south gate oh, okay so what's up charles well i was just
4: going to say that i talked to you about 2000 probably 2012 2013 and told you that i didn't have insurance and found out i had some cancer so i went to uh well i didn't go to cobra but i went to the state of california and they sold me a pretty expensive policy, and I figured I could, like, handle it, you know, for about a year anyway. Mm-hmm. So I got treated, and right in the middle of my treatment, they canceled my insurance. So you can go with a federal program. Oh, my. <laughs> well, okay, uh, what's the deal on that? Well, the premiums are going to be higher, plus your deductible doesn't count anymore.
6: <laughs>
4: I'm like, geez, I can't do that. So anyway, what I'm saying is universal health care would be a great thing, you know, from like you know, from birth to death. Yep. Because you know, if you have good doctors, they could
2: like, you know, diagnose things before they got too bad. Yep. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree with you. And and also um, you know, once you've got a system like that, everybody gets that if everybody's healthy, that's better for society. And so there's even less of an incentive, frankly. To, uh, like the Republicans, every year they try to cut the VA budget, or at least the VA hospital budget, because they want the service that the VA offers to be crappy service, so that people will complain about it. That this is what Republicans do: break government and then complain about it, so that it becomes a profit opportunity. And in fact, that's what Trump is doing right now. He's privatizing the VA. Charles, thanks for the call. Judy in Bayview, Idaho. Hey, Judy, what's on your mind today?
1: I had to rant a little bit about the Medicare Advantage plan. Okay. My first couple of years on Medicare, I fell for it. And the only thing that changed was that I was restricted and limited about what doctors I could see or what I could do. And I guess this time of year just drives me crazy because we're just inundated with all these companies that want to give you everything for free.
2: (laughs) Right. Only when you look at the fine print, it's not everything and it's not free.
1: Oh, it's not even close. I've called a few of them just to see if the $0 was available in my area. Not that I would have done it Mm because I learned my lesson. But of course, it's, it's never available in anyone's area
2: so when they say on tv it it may not even cost you anything it's just you know (laughs) that's true of 35 people in some county in southwest missouri or something
1: (laughs) Absolutely, you know. Now it's dental and prescriptions and hearing and vision, and it's just all a big fat lie. And uh, it makes so, so, have you had a specific
2: experience with any of those those add ons that tells you that it's a lie, Judy?
1: Yeah, I yeah. The the first year I I uh, went with the United Healthcare plan and uh, found myself um, just tied up and not able to. See who I needed to see, or get the services that I needed to have. And in other words, they wouldn't um, authorize
2: payments to, to the doctors that your doctors referred you to, or for the for the procedures that they asked for.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I spent all of my time trying to find a doctor or a procedure that would be covered. And the second year, I decided, well, I'll try Humana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I did that, and it was even worse, and when I tried to get out of the plan, I had to actually close out my bank account, because you cannot stop them from taking your money every month. Really? So, um you know, and and I haven't done it since. And I try to spread the word to everyone I know that you know our mamas taught us better than this. Yes. We uh, we don't get great things for free. And, and when I hear them say, and the information is. free. Well, I try not to scream, but it's hard not to
2: So Yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 I find myself we... yelling back at these commercials on TV. We're just, you know, it's, it's a tsunami coming on. And, and it's like, you know, you should just ask yourself. I mean, you're looking literally every day at tens of millions of dollars worth of advertising um, by these health oh, yeah. insurance companies, uh, telling you how, what wonderful things they're going to do for you. Who's paying for exactly, that advertising? Tom. The people on Medicare Advantage are paying for that advertising. Oh.
1: <laughs> oh we're just we're just drowning in their advertising and i was going to say millions but the the more i see the more i think we're getting into the, the billions
2: it may well um, be who and knows of course,
1: well yeah they just want to help us all because they're yeah. so good-hearted oh yeah, so, yeah of
2: course yeah it's got nothing to do <laughs> so, with anyway with ceos I, taking I'm millions so glad
1: i got to get that out thank you It's so much better talking with you than than screaming at my TV. So okay. if if only we could find someone that would do commercials rebutting um, all well, the Well, the problem is there's no profit in, do-
2: in that. You know, it's that that's the sad I thing. Know. I mean, I, I, some of there there's a small amount of profit. The, the the Medicare Advantage, or excuse me, the Medigap plans, the ones where you keep actual Medicare, and then you buy a small yeah. health insurance policy to fill in the 20%. Those are heavily regulated by the Medicare law, and so they don't have rip-off provisions in them, generally speaking. And and uh, so they're they're not quite as profitable for the health insurance companies, and so you're not seeing very many legal? ads for those. <laughs> yeah, they're still legal. Uh, I have one. long. And I wish that some of the companies that offer them, unfortunately, most of the companies that offer them also offer Medicare Advantage, but I wish that some of the companies that offer them would run ads going you know uh, don't get ripped off by medicare advantage uh, you know get a get real medicare and our medigap plan and here's how wonderful our medigap plan is that's something i would you know if one of them w- wanted to advertise on this show i would take that kind of an ad i would not take a medicare advantage ad for this show so anyhow yeah. judy thank you for yeah. the call i gotta move along but thank oh, you very much can
1: i say one more thing sure. just one more quick thing about this yeah um i had a friend to uh, my state just This year um, took the Medicare expansion, Mm -hmm. and uh, and she's on Medicaid. So she, of course, it was grabbed by Blue Cross blue shield and so all they're doing is is taking over medicare and privatizing medicaid. it without us yeah, you that's, know even that's, fighting that's it that's
2: pretty much only in the republican states but yeah the republican states got this waiver under obamacare to basically take the money that they have for medicaid the federal money that they have in the state matching part and pour that into privatized plans that get administered by private for-profit right. health insurance yeah. companies and that
1: was that was one of the terrible things that obama had to concede to yeah to get in the ACA through. so yep. Okay, yep. well, thank you, and uh, if I ever see a Medi Gap plan on your program, I'll be happy. <laughs> okay,
2: thanks a lot, Judy. <laughs> thank you. It's you great to hear you from know. you. I appreciate it. Tim in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Tim, what's up?
3: Hey, how you doing there, Tom? Good. I've got three points. One, I know a lot of
7: people coming into Canada for medical because they have a waiting list. There's so many people in line waiting, and they can come down here and get the same procedure done quicker,
4: faster,
2: sooner. That's point number one. Point number two. It's simply not true, Tim. It's simply not true? It's simply not true. Why is it not true? A, they don't have long waiting lists any more than we do. I mean, here in the United States, if you want to have hip replacement surgery and you are not in an absolute crisis, it's probably going to take six, eight months before it all gets set up. I had back surgery. It took three months just to organize the surgery. And I was in a lot of pain. I was, t- I, was, I was taking serious narcotic drugs for the pain every day, but still it took a couple of months to set up the surgery. That's just the nature of things. I mean, you know, we ration health care in the United States far more than the Canadians. We've got 30 million Americans right now who have no access to health care at all because they can't pay for it. We've got another 100 or 150 million Americans who are regularly put into economic distress by the fact that we're rationing health care based on your wealth. Canada, to the extent that they ration it, would be based on where you are on the line. And, of course, any kind of an emergency procedure in Canada is instantly available to anybody. And regular, routine doctor visits, easy You see them the same week you make your appointment. But mm-hmm. you know, we're far worse in that department than Canada. So, Tim, i got to run. I'm sorry. The, the The break caught us. Call again another time and we can we can continue the conversation. Here on the Tom Hartman program, the place where we ask, are corporations persons? Is Walmart a person? And we say, no, not a chance. And we need to fix that, by the way, with a constitutional amendment. We'll be right back. Trump is back to risking the death of people in the United States. And not just the death, also the bankruptcy. Joan McCarter over at Daily Kos wrote a really great piece about this a couple of days ago on Daily Kos that's titled Trump Administration Trying to Trick Obamacare Shoppers into Disastrous Junk Plans. And I just have to share with you the first first paragraph and a half of what she wrote because it's just um, mind-boggling. She says, Peter LaFrance, a 57-year-old Pennsylvania plumber, went to the doctor in early 2017 when his chronic shortness of breath got worse. So you following this? We've got this guy, He's a plumber in Pennsylvania. He's getting short of breath. Now, that could be a symptom of a whole lot of different things. Some of them, you know, just a simple viral infection. Others, you know, like heart disease or something. His doctor immediately sent him to the hospital where he learned that he was having heart failure and that he also had type 2 diabetes. He was in the hospital for nearly a week. So here this guy discovers that he's actually got some serious illnesses. And he's in the hospital for a week. And he thought he had insurance. In fact, what he said to himself was, well, at least I have insurance. He had actually gone out and he bought a policy. He bought a policy from this company, according to this uh, article called Golden and Rule Insurance. And it was sold as being compliant with the Affordable Care Act. And everybody knows the Affordable Care Act compliant insurance has to cover pre-existing conditions and has to pay for your hospital stay, right? No. He got a bill back to Joan McCarter here. He got a bill for thirty five thousand dollars from the hospital, which was denied by his insurer because his new diagnoses were for pre-existing conditions. In other words, the insurance company said, "You know we've only been insuring you for a year or so heart disease and diabetes don't come on in twelve months. you've obviously had them for a while whether they were diagnosed or not, so we're not going to cover them and he says." In fact, what he said, he told the reporter, he said, they basically said, I should have known I had diabetes and congestive heart failure. I should have been a doctor and diagnosed myself. He told this to the Philadelphia Inquirer. And while he was easily able to find this health insurance plan online, in fact, if you go online and Google Obamacare health insurance, you may find the actual healthcare.gov website, which is where you can buy a real Obamacare policy. But odds are, before you even see that, you're going to see all kinds of sponsored ads that are for companies that are selling what they're calling Obamacare policies, but they're actually these emergency policies. Now, until Trump came along, there's this one single little loophole in Obamacare, in the the Affordable Care Act, which says that for up to 90 days, and a maximum of 90 days, an insurance company can sell you a policy that doesn't cover pre-existing conditions. And the reason why they allowed that to be there was for people who just lost their job and lost their insurance, and they're going to start a new job, but it takes a couple months for the insurance to get processed to get the new insurance, and so they need a 90-day bridge. These are called bridge policies. And you know, with the expectation that the old policy was covering your pre-existing conditions, the new policy will, and this policy doesn't have to. Well, Trump changed that 90 days to three years. And so these companies are now selling these policies and not telling people that they don't cover pre-existing conditions. He never saw the fine print. He had no idea. This is a bait and switch. And now Seema Verma, the the head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has sent, this is from the Washington Post, quote, has sent at least five emails so far to individual market consumers, encouraging them to use outside brokers, including through a service called Help on Demand, to to sign up for health insurance. Now, all of these outside brokers are selling these short-term plans as cheap policies because they make huge commissions. On them, so we're back to where we were before Obamacare. Now with this so-called Trump Care, this is the new Trump Care. Yeah, you 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 know you you get short of breath, go to the hospital, thirty-five thousand dollar bill, and you have to pay it. And if you can't pay it, tough luck. You get to declare bankruptcy. You get to lose your life. You get to lose your job. You get to lose your home. You can go live in a car someplace. That's the new Trump health care plan. This is obscene. What are we going to do about this? And Maxine in Cleveland, Mississippi. Hey, Maxine, what's on your mind today?
8: Hello, Mr. Tom. I'd like to ask a question about my private insurance. I have Medicare, but I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. I'm retired, but I kept my state insurance, and I've been retired like six years. And, like, and then went up again, it's twice, and went up. And uh, I called them, I contacted them, asked them, why well, my insurance keep going up, and they said that's for the offset, the high-cost uh, health care. And I, I just couldn't quite understand that. And I already pay a high premium, and I very seldom use the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield because I'm on Medicare.
2: So let me understand this. You're over 65, Maxine?
8: Yes, I'm six six.
2: Okay, and you have Medicare Part A and B. You don't have a Medicare Advantage plan. You've got regular Medicare A and no, B. No, I,
8: I don't have the Advantage plan. I just have Original
2: Medicare. Right. Medicare A and B, right, and presumably mm-hmm. D. Yes. Okay. So, uh, have you bought a, a Medigap? The
8: drug I got D too.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, have you bought a Medigap plan that fills in the, ho- the that 20 percent hole in Medicare Part B?
8: No. Okay. I, I just kept my private insurance. Right. Group of so,
2: I, you know, I can't really specifically advise you. I'm not a Medicare advisor, and I'm I'm certainly not, you know, I don't have the level of expertise that, but th- there is a group in your state that's paid for by the state. We had the caller last week that was talking about it, and my apologies, I don't know the what it would be called in Mississippi, but if you call... You may have to do some Googling, but it seems to me that the best thing to do would be to dump the private health insurance altogether and get a Medigap plan and that fills in the hole for Medicare, and which is typically not that expensive. They're you know, between $150 and $300 a month, depending on the plan that you get and how, what your income is. And you just don't need the Blue Cross Blue Shield anymore. But don't take my word for it. You know, Fact check this and find out. But generally speaking, when people turn 65 and they go on Medicare, they can just abandon their private health insurance. I did, you know, our little company provides health insurance to all of our employees. And when I turned 65, I redirected that, those funds from Medicare to my Medigap plan, excuse me, from our private health insurance, you know, that Sean and Nate have because they're young'uns onto my plan. So that's what I would do, Maxine. But double check me, right, double check it. But don't double check it with your Blue Cross, Blue Shield people. They're gonna try and get you to keep that policy. Double check it with somebody who understands Medicare. I think we're starting to talk around in circles here. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma. David, you had some nice thoughts.
6: This David. Yeah, I wanted to lay in on the economy. I'm, it's been horrible for me, and actually, for about the last twenty years. You know, I've been a throwaway employee, got a bachelor of science, but couldn't guess that it's done me any good because everything, time I turn around, it's contract work, three months here, six months there, and now everything, everybody doesn't want to even pay me anything. You know, they're they're offering me the wages back of what what I used to get back in the
2: 90s. Yeah, but and, before Reagan came into office, the average family was supported by one breadwinner. Now, the average family requires more than two. Yes. And well, I'm taking
6: care of my 93-year-old mother. And was, once again, all politics are local. Yep. She had a trust that was well endowed, but because of Paulson and Greenspan keeping everything, well, the trust can't speculate on stocks and bonds. They, you know, they were making man- money as long as they could do CDs. But once that has been disintegrated to nothing, so she did not have enough money to get home health care. Now they want four thousand dollars a month, and I'm unemployed again. So I'm I'm stuck. So I'm taking care of her, and I can't leave Tulsa to find a job. I've been offered positions, but I can't leave. Right. And it's just I'm I'm really you know I'm stuck.
2: It's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs>
6: it's this whole thing of. The contract employees, and it's something that I haven't heard anybody really address what they're going to do because, you know, once you contract, if you got insurance, you get insurance of the contract company. Well, once you're not employed, well, so much for your insurance. Thank God I've got the VA. That's the only reason why I'm alive. Because wow. I've got universal health care.
2: Yeah, we had a, a, a about a twenty minute, thirty minute conversation about this last Thursday with our, and in fact, a, a couple of times it came up with our labor panel in Chicago. And this, this, this thing that uh, you know, frankly, before Reaganomics was illegal. You know, to call an employee a contractor, it has now become kind of the norm in most businesses, and I think it's an abomination. David, thank well, you, you
6: for. Office, you go into offices. And there's like three or four people that actually get a paycheck from the company. Everybody else is a contractor.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's wrong. It's obscene. I mean, I get it with part-time employees, but, but I mean, genuinely part-time employees. But what you're talking about and what we're talking about here is a completely different thing. David, thank you for the call. I hope things get better for you. I really do. Sue in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Sue, what's on your mind today?
5: We don't have a health care system. What we have is a health insurance industry. Right. That exist to reward stockholders and to reward executives with these huge multi-million dollar salaries. Our doctors, I doubt that there's a handful of doctors in the United States that make even one million a year. They make like between 150 to three or four hundred thousand a year. Right. These health insurance executives all down the line make multi millions, and I don't find many people that know that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty shocking. You know, Stephen Hemsley, the CEO of United Healthcare which makes a lot of money with Medicare Advantage programs that are, in my opinion, a scam, has taken over a billion dollars from that company in compensation. The CEO before him, they called him Dollar Bill McGuire, he took 1.7 billion. The federal government convicted him of fraud and he had to give back about 300 million. So he walked away with 1.4 billion dollars. I'm not sure if they convicted him or if they just made him give the money back, but whatever. I mean, it's mind-boggling, Sue. And it looks to me like there's a small number of players here. You've got the doctors, of course, and they regulate access to doctors through the number of people that they'll allow to graduate from medical school. But they're not the principal villains. You've got the hospital, the for-profit hospital industry. You've got the for-profit drug industry. You have the for-profit insurance industry, health insurance industry. And you have the for-profit medical equipment manufacturing industry. Those four. Or industries in collusion with the doctors in many cases have been working to raise and maintain our health care costs to the point that we now spend more than twice on health care on a per capita or, or as percentage of GDP either, either way basis than any other developed country in the world and we have still some 30 million maybe 40 million people who are uninsured and at least half of us are underinsured and People just shrug their shoulders. I mean, it's this is this is a frigging crisis, and
5: legitimate claims are denied.
2: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, I mean, this woman who's who needs a heart transplant. Yes, you absolutely need a heart transplant, but we're not going to give it to you until you do a GoFundMe page and raise ten thousand bucks for the immunosuppressive drugs, which probably will sell for ten thousand dollars, but probably cost you know two hundred dollars to make, and we're probably developed uh, as as the vast majority of drugs are. With grants from the National Institutes of Health right? in, in, in American universities. They lessen
5: medical loss. Yeah. They lessen medical loss so they can increase the stockholders' dividend or whatever.
2: And in the process, they, Americans yeah. are dying. Yes. In the absolute process, Americans are dying. We have infant mortality rates that rival the third world, we've got maternal mortality rates, mothers dying in childbirth in parts of this country that rival the third world we've got people who are literally going to sleep hungry we've got people going to sleep knowing that they've got a lump in their breast or a lump in their testicle or there's something going on but they they're afraid to go to the doctor they can't afford it they're afraid of what might happen and by the time they go or their bowel habits have changed and they don't they suspect maybe they have colon cancer but they don't know and by the time they go in and finally go in, when it gets just to the point where it's so painful they can't ignore it anymore, it's metastasized and they're they're going to be dead in six months. I mean, this is, thank you, Sue, for the call. This is the state of healthcare in the United States right now. This is terrible. Its the Tom Harvard University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being, from Chapter One, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than six thousand soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost seventeen percent of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post traumatic stress disorder. The question that perplexes us is why post war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers and how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious of process, Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information is still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks, where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states such as those involved with survival, or the perception of a threat to survival and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. So, in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus the book is walking your blues away james in high point north carolina hey james you wanted to weigh in on uh, dean baker's idea on uh, and the one that i'm saluting and basically this was thomas jefferson's suggestion that we simply not have patents for drugs in fact jefferson didn't want patents for anything and then later after when he became president he tried to argue that that they should never last more than three years well a whole bunch of companies particularly big pharma have certainly changed those rules what's on your mind james well patents in general
7: but you know when we talk about drug patents the thing about drug patents is they're kind of special in the fact that they affect uh, the broad population the other thing is even if you have a drug patent, you cannot sell that drug unless the drug has been okayed by the FDA.
2: So those are two strong arguments for saying that drugs are a unique category that should be exempt from patent protection for those reasons.
7: Yeah, yes, I, I would have to say that because the other thing about drugs is you're not going to get an individual that's going to come up with a, with a complex molecule drug that's going to cure any disease. You're going to need a big corporation for that. Sure. They work on a couple of levels. The larger corporations have their lobbyists that set the laws so that all the patent laws favor them. So in other words, a small company can prove a patent or get it and bring it to market. Right. In a lot of cases, they run out of money, and, and it and then before they are able to get that drug to market... They usually have to sell out to a larger company.
3: Yeah,
2: and, so, they're, you know and I mean. they're functionally doing this with generics. I mean, the brand-name pharmaceutical companies have bought up all the generic companies, so they're jacking the price of generics now. Right, because, I mean, this game is fixed, because you got a little regulatory on top of the patent. So, and a lot of these drugs are not even actually made by these drug companies. They're made by subcontractors in India and China. Absolutely. Now, that's not to say I'm going to foo-foo all the patents, because when
7: right. you go down to technology, just like the device I'm talking on right now, I mean, a lot of that stuff is intellectual property. And the thing about it is, once you submit a patent, people can come through a patent office, even if you're a small company or even an individual. A Larger companies can come through the patent office, see that patent, and then they can take that patent and use it. Now, if you're a small company or an individual, what will happen is you can sue the company that's using it, maybe, you know, a large company. I'm not even calling right. names. But they'll continue to use that and say, well, see me in court. Right. So the court process costs money, 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 money. And usually, uh, you know, say 97% of the times they're going to run the smaller <laughs> owner of the patent out of business before he can actually uh, win a case. Right. And And so what happens is, well, if you look at, where the economy is based nowadays, patents are a large part of the economy. I mean, you know, you talk about, about
2: intellectual property, there's more intellectual property than real property in, in this country. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that, including copyrights and trademarks along with patents yeah yeah james i gotta run but thank you for the call thanks for a very thoughtful analysis i learned from it i appreciate that please tell your friends about our program spread the good word eh however you're getting it you know wherever you're listening let the station know let the advertisers know let the underwriters know that it's a value to you so get out there get active tag you're it
4: you've been listening to tom hartman